Well, Nehemiah is um, uh, split into two sections. Uh, The first half about rebuilding the wall, and the second about reviving the people. Uh, And so the first uh, part about rebuilding the wall, as we've been thinking about the building of the church, uh, we've been learning uh, the verse in Ephesians uh, chapter 3. So this will be the final week that we'll do this particular verse. Um, So hopefully you know it quite well by now. Uh, Ephesians 3 uh, verses 10 and 11. Uh, So we'll read this verse uh, together again, but with some of the uh, words missing. Uh, So hopefully you'll be able to know uh, what it says, otherwise I'll have to carry it um, uh, myself. Uh, But that's that's fine if I have to do that. Uh, So let's read Ephesians 3 uh, verses 10 and 11. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well done, that sounded good. Well, if you turn uh, with me in your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6. And as you do that, let me pray and ask God to help us now as we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we've uh, just been singing, your kingdom come and your will be done. And as we open up uh, your word, we find your way of that being accomplished through your people responding to your word. And so help us now, Lord, to listen, to understand, that you would speak to us clearly by your Holy Spirit tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we come uh, to the end of the first uh, section of Nehemiah, uh, the rebuilding of the wall, Uh, And we begin to move forward into the second section, uh, the revival of the people. Uh, And as we've been thinking about the rebuilding of the wall, uh, we've been linking it to the New Testament work of of building the church, which God is doing through uh, his people. And as we've gone through Nehemiah, we've seen steps and uh, lessons of uh, how God used Nehemiah in his great work of rebuilding the wall and how those same steps and lessons are what God uses today as we are a part of his building work, the local expression of which is the work here in Pelsall. So let me just remind you of where we have been going through this first half of Nehemiah. Uh, The titles, of course, are the titles of the sermons, they're my own, but I'm hoping they're helpful uh, in order for you to remember and, and see where we've gone in Nehemiah. So first of all, Nehemiah sees the need in Jerusalem. Uh, Then he seeks the Lord. Then he seizes the opportunity. He sets about the work. Then he calls everyone together to do this work. And together, each individual stands up and is counted among the people of God serving in uh, the work at the time. Uh, They face opposition as they do God's work. So they are to stand firm in the battle. Then they face internal uh, uh, threats of division, so they have to stand together in unity. 
And then finally, they are, last week we saw, to stay faithful in the work. Now, you don't have to remember all of those things. They're all on the the website, so you can follow uh, there as well and look back. But that's where we've been going, and you can see a progression as we come uh, through Nehemiah, as the wall is being rebuilt, and we come today to verse uh, 15, where we'll see the wall is completed. And it's the final part of the section of Nehemiah where the wall has been rebuilt, and so we see, as we look forward, signs of moving forward. Signs of moving forward. So let's read Nehemiah chapter, chapter 6, verse 15. And I'm going to read up to chapter 7 and verse 7, uh, partly to save me having to read all those names, but I'll explain uh, why uh, I don't want to do that a little bit later. But let's read from verse 15 of chapter 6 to chapter 7 of verse 7. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah son of Arar, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshullam son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who have been the first to return. This was what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvei, Nahum, and Baana. The, the list of the men of Israel. And we'll stop there. This is the word of God. And tonight we're going to see uh, four signs uh, that this work in Jerusalem is moving forward. Uh, uh, That the work is progressing 
as we move from the rebuilding of the walls to the reviving of the people. And these signs of moving forward also can be used as a kind of barometer of how a church is moving forward in its work. It's not an exhaustive list. There are lots of other signs that a work in a church is progressing. But certainly we can learn from these four signs, signs of how a church is moving forward, or if a church is moving forward. So the first sign that God's work is moving forward is found in chapter 6 and verses 15 to 16. And it's the sign of external amazement. The sign of external amazement. In verse 15, we come to the completion of the rebuilding. Uh, The verse begins with the word, so. And in other words, because of the previous verses... Uh, or the previous chapters, really, the the praying, the mobilizing, the standing firm, the unity, the faithfulness, and so on, because of those things, the work was completed. And it was completed, we read in verse 15, on the 25th of Elul, which was the beginning of October. The book of Nehemiah began in the month of Kislev, which was just under a year before this. But Nehemiah had spent a number of months praying before chapter 2, and in, the, and in the month of Nisan, which was March, April time, things started to move forward. And from that time until the completion was a little over six months. But the wall itself, notice in verse 15, was built from start to finish when they first, if you like, put the, the spade in the ground in just 52 days. Now, that is a remarkable feat of engineering and a remarkable feat in the sense that they had no modern building equipment. It was manual labor. And it wasn't, by the way, uh, when when you think of a wall, you might be thinking of a garden wall. Uh, You might, in this church, be looking at the bricks, hopefully not counting them, but looking at the bricks and thinking of a wall uh, in this kind of a sense. It was bigger than this wall. It was a serious undertaking to build a wall around a city, and it was in just 52 days. What makes it more remarkable was the fact that they did this work while faced with external opposition and the problems of internal division that we saw in chapter 5 that threatened to derail the project. Nothing was able to stop God's plan for the rebuilding of the wall. Yes, Nehemiah played his part. There was the mobilization of all these people. But the fact that it was done in just 52 days was a great sign that this was a work of God. And in verse 16, it wasn't just Israel that noticed this. Look at verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence Because they realized, they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. It's a bit like, um, if you remember the story of the Exodus, the magicians recognized after some time that this is the finger of God at work, and they gave up. They, They were afraid. And it's interesting, though, that in the previous chapters, the enemies of God, we read a number of times, were trying to frighten the people of God, weren't they? In chapter 4, Nehemiah had to urge the people 
to not be afraid, but to remember the Lord and fight for their families. But in chapter 6, and in chapter 6, verse 9, we read that they were trying to frighten us. But here, notice how the tables have turned. It's the enemies who are now afraid. Afraid here probably uh, is more of a sense that they were in awe rather than they were quaking in their boots. But nevertheless, the, the tables have been turned, haven't they? The enemies of God who have been trying since the work began to stop this work realize that there's nothing they can do. They lost their self-confidence They were humbled because there was no answer for the success of this people other than God himself. A sign of moving forward as a church and in our own lives, I believe, is that people outside have no answer for what is going on other than this can only be a work of God. And we've seen that in the history of the church widely when you read of times of revival and reformation. We've seen that in the history of our own church here, haven't we? When God has been at work and the only answer for anybody even outside the church could only be God is at work. But it should also be true of our own lives as well. People should look at us as Christians and wonder what is going on and and, and see that this can only be a work of God in someone's life. They might not recognize it as our, our Lord, But certainly, they should notice God at work in us. A great example of this was a a missionary in the 1800s that some of you may have heard of called William Borden. He was born in America. He was a millionaire who gave up his, his fortune to serve on the mission field in China where he was going to reach the Uyghur Muslims for Christ. But sadly, while he was training in Egypt, He contracted meningitis and died at the age of 25. But in that short 25 years of life, he had such an impact on people that his grave, which is in Cairo, says these words, which you're not going to be able to see, I think, because they're so small, but I can read them out to you. On his grave, these are the words on his epitaph. It says this, Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for this life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for this life. What a great epitaph that would be to have, wouldn't it? Can that be said in any way of you? A sign of moving forward in our Christian lives is that people can see Christ in you. A Christian following the teaching of our God will be noticed as different and people will begin to wonder. So there's external amazement. Secondly, we, we, we see a, a sign which at first will appear very odd. Internal antagonism. Verses 17 to 19 take us behind the scenes of antagonism going on in Jerusalem when the wall was being completed. Verse 17 begins, In those days which indicates being at or towards the end of the project. And it seems that there were nobles in Judah who were not happy about the work that was going on. There was a change to the status quo in Jerusalem. And whilst not openly opposing Nehemiah, 
They were covertly sending letters to Tobiah, one of the enemies of the project. Now, there has been a phrase that we've heard a number of times through the book of Nehemiah that I believe this section, or these couple of verses, shed some light on. If you go back in Nehemiah to chapter 2 and verse 10, it's the first time we we read of this phrase. Chapter 2 and verse 10 says, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed. In chapter 2 and verse 19, a bit further down, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. In chapter 4 and verse 1, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Chapter 4, um, a bit, uh, I've got my notes wrong here. I've said verse 5, but it's, it's not. <laughs> but it says, When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were angry. Uh, notice in chapter 4, verse 15, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. And then in chapter 6, where we read tonight, in verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, that the war was completed. Now, I would put it to you that someone was keeping them informed of what was going on in Jerusalem. We hear it again and again. The enemies were hearing about this, and it would appear that they were hearing about it because the nobles of Judah were sending reports to Tobiah, the enemy of the Jews. Now, why were, why were they doing that? Well, the answer is in verse 18. Many in Judah were under oath to Tobiah, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son, Jehonanan, had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. So Tobiah was related by marriage to an influential Jewish family in Judah, He and his son had married women from there, and Meshulam was a man very involved in the work of rebuilding in chapter 3. And these marriages would come with oaths, and so there were spies in the midst, driven by family oaths, to let the enemies know what was going on. And in verse 19, the nobles were trying to persuade Nehemiah that Tobiah wasn't so bad. Notice that there, it says, uh, they, they kept reporting to me his good deeds. Ah, Tobiah's all right. He's, he's, I know he, he's tried to intimidate you. I know he wants to tear this work down. I know he's friends with all the other enemies, but he does some good stuff as well. He's not all that bad. But Tobiah was an enemy to God's work that they should never be allied with. And so Nehemiah refused, and so Tobiah tried to intimidate him. Now, there are two problems with what's going on here. First of all, there is the problem of joining yourself to those who are not God's people in ways that will cause you to compromise your faith. The obvious one being in a relationship with an unbeliever. That will hinder you from following Jesus because there is a pull away from Jesus. 
Now that's dealt with at the end of Nehemiah, so I'll, I'll, I'll let that rest for now. But this also is a reason why, as a church, we will not join in proclaiming the gospel with other churches who do not believe the gospel as we do. That kind of an alliance, whilst might, uh, it might seem mean or isolationist, actually would undermine the gospel we proclaim if we were to do that. So the first problem is not allying yourself with God's enemies. But the second problem is that there is antagonism from the nobles because of the change going on in Jerusalem. The nobles were the high flyers. They were in charge. Along comes Nehemiah. He starts rebuilding. He gets everyone involved. We'll see shortly he puts people in charge. And some of the nobles here, probably because of vested interests, are resistant to change and resistant to the work then progressing. And in one sense then, that is a sign of moving forward. Because when God's work progresses, some people are uncomfortable with that, aren't they? Some people don't like change. Some people will resist it. Let me give a few examples of what I mean by that. So we pray, hopefully, that we grow as a church, that people come to faith, that people are drawn in to the family of God here. But if we grow, that means there is change. Uh, people can be upset that they don't know everybody, that there isn't enough parking, or they've got to park down at the school and have to walk up to the church, that their normal seat might be taken, that they're not getting as much visits as they might like from the elders. All of these are growing pains, but pains which show the work is moving forward. Another example of when antagonism can be a sign of things going in the right direction is uh, when you think about the music in the church. We have different styles that people like, and if we're finding we get both appreciation and antagonism, usually that's a sign we're probably about in the right place. It was the same kind of thing uh, with the, the COVID regulations. A good sign was that people did come back to church and that there were people that weren't happy on either end of that, that, those, uh, those things. There can also be antagonism when ministries change the way that they've been run in the past. Some things are worth keeping, but some things do need to change over time. But it can be painful, can't it? Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me wrong here, that the antagonism is good. I'm not encouraging you to be antagonistic to say, we're going in the right direction, aren't we? In fact, I would encourage you not to be that way, not to undermine the progress of a church. But it is inevitable that as change comes, some of us may feel antagonistic. Perhaps you're feeling that even at the moment. Let me encourage you to direct that in the right way, that of praying for the church to progress, praying that we stay faithful, and praying that you have a right attitude towards change when change does come. So two signs of moving forward, external amazement and internal antagonism. But thirdly, we see critical appointments. 
As we move into chapter 7, we see that the first thing Nehemiah does after the war was completed was to make some critical appointments. The reason these appointments are critical is because they were appointments that enabled the worship of God by his people. The worship of God was the priority. The worship of God was the reason why the walls were being rebuilt. It was to enable the people to worship and enable the world to see the people worshipping and seeing the greatness of God. And in verse 1, notice that there are three critical appointments. There are gatekeepers, there are musicians, and there are Levites. So the gatekeepers were the, the home guard protecting the wall. The purpose of rebuilding the wall was to provide the security of the, uh, of the city so that worship could take place. And the role of the gatekeepers was to free people up to be able to worship according to the law of Moses and not have to worry about people attacking from the outside. Now, there isn't a direct New Testament parallel to the gatekeeper here, but it is similar, I believe, to the role of a deacon. Uh, Recently, our deacons have been reading uh, a book about uh, the role of a deacon And we've seen in this book how the deacons are to promote the safe and safeguard the unity of the church and to free up elders to lead and teach. In these aspects and more, deacons are kinds of of gatekeepers that enable the people of God to thrive in their service of worship. The musicians were appointed as they led the people in their worship of God. And it's important for us to note here a couple of things about the musicians. First, note that they were a priority appointment, meaning that music in the life of the people of God is very important. It's a high priority. And I want us to note this because over the last couple of years, I do hope that we've not lost the sense of the importance of singing together as God's people because we have been told not to sing for so long over the last 18 months. In the New Testament, we are commanded to sing. And here in Nehemiah, we see the importance of music in the worship of God by his people. It's not just some thing we can do because it's, it, some of us might like it, It's not just something we do because we've always done it. No, we we sing because we're told to sing by God himself. But another important point to note here is that the musicians were specially appointed. They were given a special role in the life of the people of God. This wasn't, can we just find someone that can play a few chords? They were appointed by Nehemiah as important roles in the life of God's people. And I think it shows the importance we should attach to the life and character of those who lead us in our singing worship of God. It's not just their ability to play an instrument or hold a tune. You can can be top of the pops in terms of your abilities to play and sing. I don't even do top of the pops anymore, but you know what I mean. You You can be that. But if your life is not 
being lived for the glory of God, if, if, if you haven't got that character of godliness, you should not be leading God's people in worship. The musicians lead people in the worship of a holy God. And so they should have a life that is worth following in how they worship, not just at the front, but every single day. So the gatekeepers, the musicians, and thirdly, the Levites are appointed. And they were responsible for the teaching of God's word to the people. And the teaching of God's people, of course, from God's word is a critical aspect in the life of a church. The importance of how we appoint those who teach God's word is actually shown a little bit later in chapter 7. Now, most of chapter 7 is a list of exiles who returned from Jerusalem when the initial decree went out from King Cyrus. It's a a copy from Ezra chapter 2, actually. But notice verses 63 and 67 of how the priests were chosen. Let me read you those verses. Verse 63 to 67 of chapter 7. It says, And from among the priests, the descendants of uh, Hobiah, Hakadate, and Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by that name, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor, therefore, ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. So the priests were amongst the same family as the Levites. And in order to be qualified to be a priest in Israel, God decreed you had to descend from a priest. And so the governor wanted to be sure that they were following God's command, and so without any proof of descent, you could not be in the priesthood. And to be careful over this was a good thing. Now, in the New Testament, of course, the priesthood was abolished because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that was needed that makes priests no longer necessary to make atonement. Jesus has done all that for us. But although we don't have priests, we do have church leaders in various roles. And although a leader is not qualified by showing a a certificate that shows that their their mum or dad was a a servant or leader in the church, they do need to be qualified. The proofs are not ancestral documents, but a godly character and reputation, an ability for the job, and a calling from God. And if we are unsure over whether someone is able or qualified to do a leadership role in the church, we also should exercise caution. We should not just thrust anyone up there because they they might have uh, the gift of the gab or whatever. And the caution was shown uh, also with the way that they waited for the Urim and Thummim to to be administered. The Urim and Thummim were stones that were used as lots, and they were in the breastplate of the high priest, and they were used for obtaining revelation or guidance from God. And the text seems to imply that they were lost or no one knew how to use them. We don't really know. But the point is they were willing to wait until God had guided them and showed them clearly what they should do. The point here is that they didn't just thrust people into leadership. They were cautious and careful. 
and so too should we be. In uh, chapter 7, verse 2, uh, notice when Nehemiah was choosing a leader, he looks for character primarily. He put Hanani and Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem. It's a good uh, combination of names there. Uh, lots of people think it's cool that we have the, the hopes and smileys as uh, the names of leaders in our church, but it's not as cool as Hananiah and Hananiah. Uh, but Hananiah uh, already showed his commitment to the cause of God in chapter 1 when he was the one who told Nehemiah about the walls of Jerusalem being in disrepair, wasn't he? But the reason these two men were picked is shown in verse 2. He was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. Now that should, of course, be a description of all of us, shouldn't it? We are not all going to be deacons, musicians, or elders. But all of us, every one, are called to serve in the area God has given us with integrity and in the fear of God. Again, the role of these leaders was to safeguard the people to enable them to worship. And we notice this in verse 3. In verse 3, they were, the, these leaders were told to make sure that the gates of Jerusalem were not opened until the sun was hot. Now, this will never be a rule in our church, otherwise our gates would be shut uh, most of the year. <laughs> it's obviously not something we're supposed to take literally to apply right uh, here today. But the point here uh, is that normally gates were opened at dawn, but waiting until the sun was up prevented the enemy from making a surprise attack. That was what was going on there. The bigger point is it was enabling the people to worship. Enabling the people to worship. And he picked these these godly men to organize that um, so that the people could worship God. Again, a sign of a church moving forward is that we have godly people in critical roles. Deacons, musicians, elders, teachers. People who are enabling all of us to worship God. But another sign of moving forward is that all of us are involved in serving God, in integrity, and in the fear of God. So three signs, one more to go. And the final sign is a familial assembly. A familial assembly. Although the walls were completed, there was still work to be done. Uh, The city we read in verse 4 was large and spacious, but few people were in it. But if the city was going to grow in population, which was what they wanted, it needed to have houses. And so the work of God needed to continue to progress because they wanted people to come and move into the city. And so with lots of work to do, Nehemiah effectively says, who have we got in Jerusalem to carry on this work? He calls a census. And so in chapter 7, we read the list of names that Nehemiah pulls out. And what he does is he pulls out the list of names that is in Ezra chapter 2. The list of names of the people that initially came to Jerusalem from the exile in Babylon. Now, a few years ago, uh, I did preach through Ezra, and I did preach on Ezra chapter 2. So if you want to hear a a sermon about all those names, you you can go back if you so wish and listen to that. 
But what we see here in uh, summary in chapter 7 is a list of the people of God by families who came to Jerusalem to serve. And in verses 70 to 72, we see the generosity of the people. Notice there that they, they give um, to, to, the, to, the, to the treasury uh, lots and lots of, uh, of gold and silver in order to get the work going. But notice in verse 73, it says, The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people, and the rest of the Israelites, here's the key phrase, settled in their own towns. They settled. That means they didn't just turn up, do a little bit for a few weeks, and then go home. They settled in Jerusalem. And for us today, as Pelsall Evangelical Church, we are to be a people that is committed in our giving and settled and committed to the work that is going on here, serving this local family of God. Nehemiah needed the list to see who he has got so that he can put them to work. The initial work is done of rebuilding the wall, but the work of worship continues. And so for us today, the work of God continues on, doesn't it? And we have a, a membership, which is, if you like, our list of people who have committed to serving God in this locality and giving of themselves to promote the worship of God in this community. Interestingly, in verse 4, Notice how it speaks of a city with space for more people. But they have to get ready for them. And in our church, uh, you'll notice there are lots of chairs that are empty. We need to be a people that are ready to invite others and welcome them to join us to worship our great God. The family mission of this church, of this familial assembly is to make disciples of Jesus Christ that our family would grow as more people in this area come to know Jesus Christ. So let me encourage each of you to get involved in this great family endeavor. As we close, I want us to turn our thoughts to Jesus. And again, we can always look to him at how he fulfills these things. When he was on earth, Jesus was bringing in the kingdom of God. And people were amazed, weren't they, at what he was doing? Didn't he have external amazement? How often we read, who is this? What kind of man is this? What teaching with such authority? Didn't Jesus face antagonism even from in his own disciples as they struggled to adjust to what he was saying to them, especially about his impending death and resurrection. Jesus appointed the apostles to lead in the church and write the New Testament documents. And that was after he himself was appointed to the highest place and given the name which is above every name. And Jesus is the one who is continuing to bring people in to the great family of those who follow and serve him all over the world. 
The kingdom of God could be described like Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, a large and spacious city with few people, but not yet complete. So there is space, by the way, for you if you have not joined us. Space for you to join the kingdom of God, a kingdom which will never end, and a kingdom which will be bringing glory to the name of Jesus forever and ever. Let me invite you to be part of that glorious and wonderful kingdom of God. Well, before we come to the Lord's table to remember how Jesus loved and served us through his death, our final song is a song of commitment that we would do what we've been talking about, that we would offer up our lives in service to God in response to his great love. So let's stand together uh, and sing. I will offer up my life in spirit and truth. And after we've sung together, uh, we'll have the Lord's Supper together. Oh, you paid the 